What we've got here, Joe, is the first cask, cask number one from Glen Glaser Distillery, distilled 16th of December 2008 and bottled on the 16th of December 2011. It's one of only 650 bottles, 59.1% ABV, so it's all part of a rebirth of a distillery, and this is the first release from their, from that rebirth. But what we've got here is the revival sample, which is at 46% ABV and was bottled nearly just about was just before the the that bottling there, mm-hmm. the first cast bottling. So let's see what we think of this. Now on that nose, I have to say I'm picking up a rather new makey sort of nose to it. There's a youthful yeah, that, I thought that's what it smelled because I thought before when the microphone was around me, I said it tastes it smelled flowery, and that's what I get off of Clarac as well, which is why I don't like it because it's too flowery. Right. So actually, I do quite like that, but it's it's a, there's a youthfulness about it. There is some mellowness there. There's like a little bit of clothness to it, you know, a hessian smell to it. It's very gentle. Or. Oh, not on the aftertaste. Considering what I thought it was going to taste like, that is gentle. What do you think it was going to taste like? Well, with ad- other than just strong. Well, I thought because of the new make nose to it, that it was going to be quite harsh. And there is an edge to it. There's a slight harshness to it, but it's not. It's not as harsh as I thought it was going to be. It's actually smoothed off a fair bit. It seems to have like a second. Second wind to it. You sip it and it's like, hmm, that's nice. And then mm. you swallow it. And then about 10 seconds later, you get a big rush of warmness. From it. Yeah. And I think within that warmness, there's a bit of uh, toffeed flavour coming through as well. I'm not picking up much fresh fruit, but there's a cooked fruit nature to it. Like a baked apple, the inside of a baked apple sort of. It's got quite a nice long finish to it, which then suddenly seems to stop. I'm trying to place this taste I'm getting from it. It's not quite toffee-ish, it's more, I don't know, caramel or? No, I think there's a bit of a toffiness to it. Or almost Chocolatey, like, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, I would go with that, chocolate, like a Rolo. Yeah, very much like a Rolo. Like a Rolo. Do you want to try a little bit more? I need a tiny bit. I just want to know whether you wanted to put any do. water in with it. Got a drop of water? Go on then, only a drop. Oh, you want me to do it? I'll tell you something, that's got a lot of cling to the to the glass as well. And that bit I of like water. water. Well, I've not tasted it yet, but the, the I think the water has actually softened down the toffiness in the nose, the floweriness in the nose and allowed more of the new makey aspect to come out. I lose the floweriness. It starts to taste a bit more earthy. Well, it changes the taste, though. It does, quite dramatically. Yeah. Brings it completely out a... gets rid of that second rush. But it brings out a lot more saltiness. A lot more salty with the water added. And there's something else in there as well that I can't quite place at the moment. I'm not getting soft. There's something early. 
there's salt hold on to that mineral there's salt and there's a bit of pepper but it isn't peppercorn it's not like black pepper white pepper white pepper any types of pepper are there loads of different types of pepper isn't there oh you could say chili pepper cayenne pepper capsium pepper and those are only general ones red pepper yellow pepper green pepper I tell you, I had some beer the other day, made from ghost naga chilli. No, you didn't. It's called Black Death. My friend Ben got it for me as a housewarming present, and it was uh, black. Uh, sorry, ghost naga chilli is the strongest chilli, apparently, known to man. Or, or so it claims it's like 500,000 million billion Scovilles. It was absolutely delicious. Good, I'm very happy. Any idea what this mineral was? No, I'm j I can't place the mineral, I'm just saying it's a minerally, maybe slightly chalky, but... See, I actually, what I'm picking out now is a little bit almost like seaweedy. It's like a walk along the edge of a pier. I get that feeling that if I licked my lips, I'd pick up salt spray. I'm not getting any salt. Really? This is actually knocking me over with the with the, with the saltiness of it. No, I thought it was more salty before. No, oh, interesting. There is there is something there, and it is minerally and stony, and it's. I don't know if it's even a specific thing. It it tastes a bit more dank. It's like before it tasted of flowers, and now it's, it tastes of like a bit more just kind of earthy or composty. Okay. And I'm not a big fan of the flowery nose and clear and you make and all that but I prefer that to this I think it's that, that taste was stronger and more like you yeah but what I think there is here is an awful lot of character waiting to come out I think once it's picked up a bit more influence from the wood I'm not picking up an awful lot of vanilla or sherry notes or anything like that from it you know what I mean or any of the more classic wood influences the basic rawness that's there I think has got an awful lot of potential to come out of it not that this is bad I actually really enjoyed it I found it quite an in well very interesting um, drink to have and I think the way that it changes with the water I thought was really interesting as well it'd be lovely to see what this is like in another three years time Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. Well, here we are again, the end of another year. Things have happened things are still yet to happen it's a time of reflection isn't it people often look back on the year before them and when you get to a certain age you look back further than that to the life that's come up to you up to this point now i find it quite weird i mean it's taken me a year to to realize something but it's an important thing this this time last year 
I was looking back on what was, I think, actually only about six months, the time that at that point I'd been doing this podcast for. And one of the things that when I was looking back, I think I said was this last year, this last six months, had been the time when I'd become the Morted Muse. It was a big change for me to take on that sort of a role. And now I look back on it and I think to myself, what an arrogant fool I was. There's a part of me that knew it at that point. It was me stumbling over words more than anything else. Because I'm not the morted muse. I've never been the morted muse. I've never really thought of myself as being the morted muse. I'm somebody who is influenced by the morted muse. So it's time for some honesty, isn't it? It's time to reveal the true identity of who is the malted muse. And the answer is actually quite obvious. See, I'm not the malted muse. I'm just a vehicle. I am somebody who is affected by the malted muse. The malted muse is, in fact, whiskey itself. That is what the muse is. And I'm just one of those people that is inspired by it. And that's all part of the more factor that whiskey has. The fact that it is a drink, but it's not just a drink. It's so much more than a drink to a point where maybe it's not a drink at all. It's something higher than that. Whiskey affects us. It brings us together it helps us in solitude but it also inspires us it, it it does so in a way that many other drinks if not all other drinks just doesn't do it takes us on journeys it lifts us it brings us to states of awareness that other drinks don't do this is something i've spoken about on many occasions and it's part of the effect it has on me. It's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. It's part of the reason why I'm so interested in whiskey. And it's part of the reason why I came up with that name, The Malted Muse. It's not because I consider myself to be a muse. It's because I'm so affected by the muse. The muse that is malted and that muse that is, in fact, whiskey. So when you see that name, the Malted Muse, remember, it is the whiskey that I'm talking about, not myself, as I foolishly alluded to a year ago. And to be honest, I can't really believe I'm still doing this a year later. I thank you all that are listening to this, for listening to this. It's something I really did not anticipate. When I first started off doing this podcast, I didn't know where it was going to lead to. I had some ideas, some thoughts, but I didn't know where it was going to lead to, how it was going to be responded to, and it's given me nothing but pleasure, including getting an email on Christmas Day by a listener who was saying about how listening to the podcast had helped them during a tiresome or weary period of work whilst they're in Russia. Somebody has been listening to my podcast in Russia. That's unbelievable. The global effect of it. But anyway, let's get back to this concept of whiskey being the muse. 
that it inspires us, it affects us, it leads us into, into aspects of life that perhaps you wouldn't otherwise do. After a whiskey or two, suddenly the, the world that we live in appears different to us, it feels different to us. Now, it inspires me to do things like talking, like writing, but I'm not the only one, I'm sure, that's inspired to that. I read quite a bit about whiskey, and other people that write that stuff must also be inspired by it. So it seems only sensible, only natural, to actually talk to one of those people, and my life do I feel honoured to do that. And this week, I've managed to talk to somebody who I have found a great inspiration a great source of information and a great source of of entertainment as well and that person is called Ian Buxton a person who has written about Glenn Farkless who I spoke about in the last episode who's written about uh, Glenn Glasgow Distillery who I spoke about in previous episodes and of course is relevant to this episode as well and has written many other things as well I'm not going to talk about him right now. Why should I do that when he is present on this podcast to talk about it himself? It gives me great honour to start this new year off with such a character, such a, an oracle, such a wise person as Ian Buxton. Ian, thank you ever so much for agreeing to talk to me. I've got so many questions for you. Um, I know I won't get through all of them tonight, um, but I suppose one of the things I really must ask you is, is to start at the beginning. What was it that first got you interested in, in writing about whiskey? Well, I'd done a lot of, in, in my, first of all, in my marketing work, uh, for different, for, first of all, for brewing and then for distillery companies. And then when I worked in consultancy, I'd always done a lot of writing at that time. And uh, the first published piece, if you like, with, with my byline on it was for Whiskey Magazine. And that came about very early in the life of Whiskey Magazine. And that came about because I knew the people uh, running it. And they asked my opinion of a particular article, which I knew something about. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, foolish enough to give them my opinion which was greeted, well, if you think you can do better, send us an article. <laughs> so I did, uh, because I did think I could do better. And they published it, and then they wanted some more, and, and one thing led to another. That would be 10 or 12 years ago now. So I know it sounds a, a silly question, but had an interest in whiskey already been well embedded in you at that point? Oh, well, yeah, but I mean, I had been working in the whiskey industry uh, well, I have been working in the whiskey industry since the late 1980s when I was working at that time for Robertson and Baxter, the blenders who are part of the Edrington company. And after working there for, I had worked in the brewing industry previously in marketing. And after that, working for uh, Robertson and Baxter, who are one of the sort of aristocrats uh, of the industry, although very invisible, I went uh, to work for Glenmorangie where I was marketing director for a while. And then I set my own consulting business up in, well, 20 years ago now, in 1991. Mm -hmm. 
And I was doing, for all that time, I was doing consulting work in the whiskey industry. The writing just grew out of that about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. And what's getting into the whiskey industry and the associated industry you were talking about beforehand, was that um, something that happened by chance or was that a deliberate move that you went into? No, that was very deliberate. I mean, I loved and I still love working in the drinks industry. I had, after I left university years ago, I worked for a small regional brewer uh, called Devonish in the West Country. Right. And I just adored that. I loved working in the drinks industry. Oh, excuse me. That's annoying. Someone else will pick that up. You could probably... That better not be Mark Gillespie that's phoning you up at the moment. I've got enough competition as I can take from him. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was I thinking about? <laughs> we, were, we were talking about... Um... Did I love the yeah, no, it was a very... It was a... A very deliberate and planned and conscious choice because shortly after I left university, I started working in marketing for a small brewery company in the West Country called Devonish. And I just found that I adored the drinks industry. I adored everything about it. I loved the way the products were made. I loved all the history. I loved all the iconography about it. I very much enjoyed the people and the conviviality of that industry. I enjoyed its traditions. There was just nothing I didn't like about working in the drinks industry see that's that's interesting sorry to cut across but that's interesting because you've you've done something there you've mentioned a whole load of things and it reminds me a little bit about um leonardo da vinci and uh, apparently at some point he listed all the things that he was and fairly low down on that list was the word artist because there's so many other things that he put yes. beforehand. You've just made a list there of some of the things that you thought were, were fantastic about the drinks industry. Um, but you didn't really mention that much about the drink, which suggests that there's a whole load of other stuff, not just the drink itself, no, that was well, appealing I do, to you. Know, I, I mean, yes, I do like a, I do like a drink. And I like the taste of the product. And used sensibly i like the effect of the product but there was so much more and uh one of the things about the drinks industry in its widest sense whether it's winemaking or brewing or distilling is the huge richness to it and jim we've been making wine we've been making beer we've, we've been distilling thing for hundreds thousands of years and it's intimately bound up with human culture it's intimately bound up with philosophy about how we view the world mm. and it's too important just to think about the product all of that richness there uh, is to be savored it's to be enjoyed it's to be appreciated and i found that i just loved every part of that so we i had been working in the brewing industry for a few years i left uh, devonish you know in the pursuit of a better job i ended up working for uh, bass and for whitbread for bass when they were still brewers so that dates me and then both my wife and I come from Scotland, so we were very keen uh, when our family started to come back to Scotland, and there were few, uh, if any, brewing jobs, and that's what got me into the distilling industry, working, as I say, for Robertson and Baxter, hmm. the blenders in, in Glasgow in the late 80s. So a lot of your effort, a lot of your energy, a lot of your intellect and everything has gone into a whole wide range of activities to do with this industry but for the ignorant punter such as myself what i would guess you are more well known for to the general public is of course writing books 
about the industry and articles about the industry. When when you set about doing that, I know this sounds a bit of a strange question, but when you set about doing that, writing something, what do you see as being your prime objective when you're doing that? That is interesting. I think, you know, now I'm I'm in the fortunate position of being more or less an independent voice. So I'm not really beholden to anyone. So guess what I'm trying to do is is tell it as, as I see it. But I have a view that, that almost everything we do and look at is informed by where we've been. Right. So you'll see in a lot of the things that I write, there will be some sort of historical or cultural perspective. And if I'm trying to do anything, it's to widen the debate uh, to be more than just about products, interesting though they are but to set those products into some kind of uh, contextual uh, framework so that we understand more fully where those products came from, mm. what they might mean, how we arrived at, at them. Uh, if, that that, makes, if that makes any kind of sense. That uh, makes perfect sense. But I suppose one of the other things that's going through my mind as you're saying that is that also demands quite a degree of honesty, doesn't it? Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, that, that's for you to say. If you observe that, uh, Jim, in the writing, then I'm gratified. That's certainly that's certainly an aim. But it's mm. you know, I'd like other people to to say that rather than me to necessarily claim. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking that is, I mean, there's various components that I feel with with the way that you write. One is there's a factual element to it. There's almost like there's this host, well, not almost. It is a historical record aspect to quite a bit of the stuff that you've written. Yeah. Uh, there's also that element of it of expression. Somehow or other, you pick up on the character. I think I was, we were talking about the Glenn Farkless book that um, is the more, most recent one of yours that I've read. I, I felt the same with the Glenn Glazick book that you wrote as well. That it wasn't just a historic record of what's gone on in that distillery but somehow or other you also managed to pick up the energy and the the character of the people that are there now but you also don't seem to shy away too much from speaking very bluntly about how you find the industry well i hope i hope not i mean there would be very little point in in just replicating bland uh, platitudes and PR statements. I don't mm. see that that's that's my job. There's enough people putting PR out. There's enough people doing marketing. And goodness knows I used to do that. But you're right. I mean, both both the Glenn Glasser book and the Glenn Farkless book, in, in which case I'd have to say both of those clients, because they're both commissioned books, gave me an extraordinarily free hand for me to write it and not to have uh, you know, my arm up my back as to as to what they wanted there. They're not marketing books. They're, I believe they're genuine books, albeit commissioned. What I was trying to do is 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 go beyond the product, and in both cases, the, the products are superb. They both make fabulous whiskies. But I was trying to unpick the stories, unpick the romance, un unpick the poetry, if you like, of what makes Glen Farkless Glen Farkless, what makes Glen Glasser Glen Glasser. With Glen Farkless, we have a wonderful story, which is about resolute family independence through thick and thin. And the book tries to follow that thread and take that story 
and weave the story of the people, the place, the production, uh, all together in, into a into a more poetic whole, if you will. Mm. But as you say, these are books that have been commissioned. Yes. You've also got another book which is, I reckon, is or if not is bordering on being coming an iconic book now, which is the 101 Whiskies to Drink Before You Die. Well, we've all been, both myself and my publisher have been delighted and surprised by by the success of that. Yes, 101 Whiskies to Try Before yeah. You Die um, was great fun to do great fun to do and it's i'm pleased to say found a very wide acceptance and that also seems to be more of a personal book in many ways it's but, very much a personal book it, yeah. it is my it is my book um that wasn't commissioned it's it's you know it's published by hachette mm. uh, but they didn't tell me what to write you know it's not a so yeah those are my those are my 101 whiskies and i i was trying to do something there you know i felt that uh some whiskey writing, not all whiskey, some whiskey writing was just beginning to lose, you know, people's feet were coming off the ground and we were beginning to lose touch with reality. We live a very privileged life, um, whiskey writers who are in this sort of circle, and we get to taste and try the most fabulous stuff. But, of course, for, for various reasons, the vast majority of people are never going to have access to those. If, if we're talking about a, a single cask bottling where there's only a couple of hundred bottles, mm. Um, they're, they're all gone, you know, before before a book is printed, before a magazine, before a newspaper article is printed, let alone a magazine, let alone a book, the 200 bottle cask bottling, you know, single cask bottling has gone to, to them and such as those. It's all gone. The the £5,000 bottle, the £10,000 bottle, the £50,000 bottle, in reality, who's actually going to ever experience those? So I sure. felt that a lot of whiskey writing was beginning to lose touch and uh, take itself rather too seriously. So I said, let's write a, let's write a whiskey book. And, uh, you know, I think I said it right at the front of the book. Um, this is, this is accessible whiskey for real people. Hmm. So there, there are no limited editions that are all gone long before the book comes out. There are no thousand pound, let alone five, let alone 10, thousand pound bottles in there and i didn't want to be that kind of smart aleck whiskey writer who says well i've tasted this it's terribly wonderful but you're never going to yeah what's the point in that because there are so many many wonderful wonderful whiskies <clears throat> and i'm working on a follow-up to the book now because it's been so successful we're, we're doing another hundred and one there are so many wonderful whiskies you can buy for perfectly reasonable sum of money I, I pointed out to somebody that uh, a £10,000 bottle... There are lots of £10,000 bottles out there now. It's, it's an extraordinary amount of money. I pointed out to someone at a tasting I was doing that for £10,000, you could go down to your local car dealership and buy a brand spanking new Fiat 500. You could fill the boot with whiskey and still have change from £10,000. Yeah. So what did you want? A, a brand new Fiat 500, a bootload of whiskey, and and a few tenors to fold into your pocket. Yeah. Would you like one single bottle? Well, for 99.99 percent of us, it's a very easy call. And can I just say a little something to the listeners of this podcast? That if anybody does actually try doing that and gets pulled over by the police with a boot full of whiskey, we have now got it on record that Ian Buxton said that we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, sealed. Uh, you didn't know you didn't have to. <laughs> you don't have to drink them there then. Get them safely home. Yeah. And, and explain to your wife, well, there you go, darling. I popped out to the off license for a £10,000 bottle, but I've brought home a Fiat 500, <laughs> a bootload of whiskey, and some folding change for a yeah. fish supper tonight. So it's also amazing with that book how many people that I mean so many people that I've come across who've actually got a copy of that book and are actually seeing that as a target to work to they want to yeah, get that, through Yeah that completely that actually took me completely and utterly by surprise I mean the title is a bit of fun really there's that the, the, the whole 101 thing goes back more than 35 years to when the guy wrote the book, um, you know, 101 Uses for a Dead Cat. I don't know sure. if you've ever seen that. It's yeah. Cartoons. Cat lovers needn't be offended. No, ca no cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. But uh, 101 Uses for a Dead Cat came out about 35 years ago. And there have been 101 books on, on 101 subjects ever since. Uh, and I was surprised when we sat down and we thought of a title for this that nobody had done 101 whiskeys. So it was a bit of fun. What I hadn't anticipated um would that people would take it quite so literally and and as you say start to tick off collect the bottles drink the bottles and and count their way to the to the 101 there was even um a group of dutch enthusiasts set up a, a group on facebook and uh that's the 101 whiskeys group on facebook and what they very clever what they do is uh even for the more expensive bottles which are you know a few hundred quid i suppose for the most expensive ones one person will buy a bottle and then they divide it up amongst, and everyone subscribes, and they divide it up amongst the group to split the cost, which I thought was rather fun. Yeah. But that's also a lovely testament to yourself, isn't it? That oh. that book and the products are, again, bringing people together, shared experience, getting people talking. And, you know, that's all credit to yourself and well, the fact that you made it accessible that stuff that people can get. It's all credit to the product, really, and that's what the product's about. It's about uh, breaking down social barriers. It's about having fun with friends. Above all, it's about drinking it and enjoying it. You know, it's it's not about um, investing in whiskey and all yeah. this sort of idea. Enjoy, drink it, enjoy it. That's why it was made. Share it, savor it, definitely share it, um, and enjoy. If if people have been inspired by 101 and they've, they've gone out and, and bought them, and they have, and I've been thrilled and surprised by that that's been that's been that's given me quite a buzz it's great fun in we're talking about accessible product here yeah not everything in the world is accessible and one of the things i do admire about your writing is the amount of research that you put into it what what has been the best whiskey book that you've read or is there one out there that you've not read, something that's lost or so rare that you'd be desperate to read? Oh, good. I have, <clears throat> I have quite a library. What I do collect, I don't collect whiskey, but I do collect books about whiskey and books about distilling. And there are some, as you say, some very rare books out there. The, 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 one of the very first books that I, that I read many, many years ago, and I didn't really realize at the time how important it was, but I was involved in... Um, getting it reprinted and published again in 2006 was a book just simply called Whiskey by Aeneas MacDonald, which was actually a, a pseudonym for a man called George Malcolm Thompson. And that was published in 1930. And people might say, well, what on earth has a book? Quite a slim little book published in 1930. What on earth is that going to tell us today? In fact, it's one of the most beautifully written books, one of the most poetic books about whiskey 
because it talks not so much about the product, although it does, but in relatively minimal terms compared to today's lengthy critiques and tasting notes. But what McDonald does in this book, he talks about whiskey as essentially as a metaphor for the spirit of a nation. Mm. And so he, he sets up whiskey as, as representative of the spirit and soul of Scotland. At a time, 1930, uh, when Scotland was suffering even more than the whole of the United Kingdom from the economic depression, when the whiskey industry was in dire, dire straits, and when 99.99% of, of what was being drunk was blended whiskey. And he champions single malt or single whiskey, self-whiskies, as they were called then. He writes enormously poetically uh, about whiskey, but he goes on to suggest that, that that spirit is, if you will, the spirit of the nation. It's a metaphor for Scotland's national identity. And because the nation was in decline, because whiskey was in decline, this was a rallying cry uh, for his country. He was a fierce uh, Scottish nationalist, a Scottish patriot. So that's a wonderful book. Uh, more. And, can, I just, and can I just say something about that book as well, Ian? Is, is that one of the things I got from reading that book was that great sense of here is a book about whiskey, but it's also saying... Where's the effect of, by all means, read about whiskey, but you have to experience it to truly yeah. understand it. And at that early stage, and back in the 1930s, was actually warning people against whiskey snobbery by, by what he was saying about how wine had gone down that. Yeah, absolutely he was. Track. Yeah, it's, it's not about snobbery. It's yeah. about experience it and to, to judge, you know, your own, I think he calls it your own mother wit and wisdom. Mm. Try it, taste it, be your own judge. Um, it's one of the reasons just that it inspired me, if you will. There are no scores in the book 101 Whiskies to try before you die. It's not ranked. It's in alphabetical order. Mm. And the tasting notes that I've, I've written there are fairly minimal. Mm. And that's about saying uh, it's for you to judge. I can put these in front of you. And there are some whiskies in there that I like more than others. There are some I'm not that wild about, but I know them to be well made by, by passionate, engaged, concerned people. And you may well love them. Mm. So, as Aeneas MacDonald said, you know, let your own uh, mother wit be, be the judge. Don't be guided by the whiskey snobs. Mm. Uh, um, experience it for yourself. Try it, drink it, try it, experience yourself, judge, move on. So, yes, that's a big lesson to come yeah. from that book. And, and that was the first, that is the first modern book about whiskey written from the perspective of the drinker. There, there are books about whiskey written before 1930, but they're all written from a trade perspective. Um, Barnard, which you know is the most obvious one to, to cite, uh, Alfred Barnard with the Whiskey Distilleries of the United Kingdom in 1887, was written uh, by someone in the trade for trade audiences, and that's true of other books as well. 1930, Anesmond on Whiskey uh, is the first book written from the standpoint of the drinker, and even if it wasn't a very good book, and it, and it is a very good book, even if it wasn't a good book, it's an important book because of its place in the chronology of sure. writing about whiskey. And how easy is it to get hold of a copy of that? Well, the, the first edition is quite hard now. They, they only actually, I did a lot of research on this, and I was fortunate enough to meet. He was a very long-lived man. He was only about uh, 30 when he wrote the book. He actually uh, lived into his 90s. I think he was 96 when he died. And I was fortunate enough to track down his daughter and go and see her and, and uh, talk to her about this. There was also a very obscure, um, it was published by a publisher in Edinburgh uh, in the 30s called the Porpoise Press. 
you know, porpoise like a small dolphin, the porpoise, sure. and um, of which uh, McDonald was a partner. Uh, and we were able to track down that they had only ever printed 1,600 copies of this book. And, of course, a lot of them would be lost. So if you find one in a bookseller who knows what it is, they will charge you quite a lot of money for the first edition. But it was reprinted in uh, 2006 by Canongate. And I persuaded them this was a book worth reprinting. And I wrote a, an introduction to it. And I think you can still get... I think it's sold out, but you can find it on uh, eBay and Abe Books, hmm. um, and you can get that relatively cheaply. So it's 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 still pretty accessible. Um, there are some rare books around. Uh, Alfred Barnard, who, who I mentioned a moment ago, everybody knows the um, whiskey distilleries of the United Kingdom, the the eighteen eighty seven, the big tome, which again you can get in in reprint. There are plenty of reprints of that, and you can buy those for for twenty or thirty pounds. A first a nice first edition now in the original green cloth binding will will set you back between two and a half and four thousand pounds. It's it's an expensive book to buy. But what is little known is that uh, is about ten years later he was hired by six different distillery companies to do pamphlets for them, and those are extraordinarily rare. Mm. And uh, I illustrate one of the of the front cover of the one that was done for Glenn Farkless and for Patterson's. They were they were partners in the late eighteen nineties. That's illustrated in the Glenn Farkless book. And in the Glenn Glasser book I was able to reproduce a whole section uh that Barnard wrote about Glenn Glasser in about eighteen ninety eight, something like that, which has never been published and seen since. Nobody would ever have seen that. So that yeah. took a digging to find that, I can tell you. Yeah. But these these are these are you know irreplaceable historical documents, and uh, you know my belief is that unless you understand where we came, just like people tracing their genealogy, people researching their family tree, unless you understand you know who you are, where you came from, you don't really understand who you are today. And the same mm. is true, I think, um, for the whiskey industry. But I think also these these old books, they also give you a sample of times gone by in other ways as well there are there are social and, and political commentary in in yeah, many other ways absolutely absolutely i mean they're <clears throat> they're written and they and they reflect their time and you have to yeah. uh, you have to take that into account when you read them um and if you've read any of the barnard entries he, he rambles on at great length infuriatingly to the modern reader about all his travel details and about the scenery and the and the romantic countryside that he was mm. passing through but then you have to remember that for the vast majority of his audience, they would never have set foot in Scotland. They had It was this wild, strange, romantic place. And they wanted to know, how did you get there? Um, what was the traveling like? What were the social conditions like? What were the inns and, and like, you know, how did you travel? And so he devotes quite a lot of space to that. And we look at it as modern readers and we go, no, you know, tell us more about the size of the distillery. Tell us how they were exactly making it. Give us some tasting notes. Mm. And he doesn't do that because he's writing for an audience, you know, 120 years ago. And yeah. that audience wanted different things. And he was nothing if not a very professional journalist. There's also those little comments. That, I think it was in Whiskey um, where at one point he talks about the American distillery yes. scene yes. Um, by simply saying there aren't any. Well, of course, it was prohibition. Um, yeah. You've got to remember that. So 1930, uh, there was no American distilling, apart from a very, very limited amount of distilling, which was going on for um, medicinal use. And, of course, a vast amount of 
uh, illicit and bootleg distilling that was going on um, f- to supply the uh, the bootleg market. And of course, mm. it was huge, and as we all know, prohibition eventually failed, but not before it had deeply rooted uh, organized crime into American society. So that was one of the great unintended consequences of prohibition. Uh, that book, Whiskey, was actually issued in America in 1934, when prohibition had just been repealed the year before. So an American publisher did bring out uh, an edition. In fact, it's easier to find the American edition from 1934. It's slightly less valuable, but it's a lot easier to find that mm. if, you, if you wanted a first edition. But as you said earlier, the, the chances of getting a first edition English one um, well, in, in good condition... Here. You throw enough money at it, Jim, you'll you'll get one. But it's yeah. well into three. It's well into three figures now. That book, yeah. um, partly, <coughs> partly, I'm afraid to say, because we I did do the reprint and talked about it and wrote about it, and people were said, "Oh, I I want I want that." So yeah. the, the prices in secondhand bookshops, who knew what they got, shot up. I don't suppose there can be more than a few hundred copies of that book surviving. Or you could just be very fortunate and find a book shop that doesn't know what they've got. You could, and, and like like fact, I did, and buy a copy for five pound. Well, you, yeah, I paid 10 for mine. <laughs> I paid Jim, I, I know someone, I better not say who it is, I know someone, this is a true story, it's a few years ago now, who actually picked their copy of Barnard, which today, as I say, even even a shabby copy would be a couple of thousand pounds and a nice one would be three or four thousand. This person who, who picked it out of a skip in Leith in Edinburgh. Wow. It was just lying on top of a whole bunch of stuff that was being chucked out. There were a lot of distillery offices and bonds and so forth in Leith a few years ago. And I suppose somebody was having an office clearance. And this fortunate fellow happened to walk past, looked in the skip, as we all do. We all do, don't we? Every, you can't not look in a skip. Yeah. I defy anyone to walk past the <laughs> skip and not at least look in it. Well, he did a bit of, what do they call it in America, dumper diving dumper diving and came away with an original first edition of, of Barnard so that was uh, a very profitable That's 10 marvelous. minutes work marvelous. so these things do turn up um, and and you know it, it can be your extraordinary good fortune if you know what you're looking for look out for it they, they are out there but we're talking about a time gone by, a, a writing style that's gone by, a, a social time that's gone by. How how do you respond? How do you consider the? And please be honest with me about this. The more modern versions, really, the blogs, the podcasts, the more of an amateur scene of writing that's around at the moment. No, we love, I think I love that. I mean, I, I I think one of the fantastic things about the web. Uh, is the way it's democratized comment and it's democratized whiskey. So anyone, <laughs> don't mean that in a nasty way, anyone can, can set up their blog uh, or their Twitter feed or whatever it might be and start feeding out their thoughts and views. And I guess if their thoughts and views make sense and if they're, if they're well expressed and if they're articulate, if they've got something to say, very quickly an audience will develop. Hmm. And I think that's absolutely wonderful because, you know, my take on this is there are whiskies I like, whiskies I don't like. I've spent a lot of time in the industry, but that doesn't mean to say by any stretch of the imagination, I, I know it all. I don't even know half of it all or 10% of it all or whatever the figure is. And so we can all learn from each other. And some, I, you know, I'll look at blogs. I look at uh, some of the most new entrants into this and they'll, give fresh insights and fresh views and make you think about things in a different way. And the more we can make whiskey accessible to people, the more we talk about it, the more we share about it, 
uh, the better the industry will do. And there is something about whiskey that engenders that conversation that just doesn't happen. And in my view, just isn't ever going to happen with, let's say, vodka. Mm. No, know, absolutely. Quite, quite, quite the most pointless product on earth. But <laughs> um, why would you blog about vodka when you can blog about whiskey? Why would you write about it? So there is something about whiskey that engages people, it encourages discourse, it encourages communication, it encourages sharing, and the web, the blogs, posts, Twitter, whatever they might be, they're part of that process, they're part of that gigantic conversation, which has exploded um, in the last five years, exploded in the last year. Well, you talk about, this is an awful question to ask you really, I suppose, but I, I, I won't hold back, um, but you talk about how it, encourages communication really and contact and sharing of thoughts and ideas and, and what have you but with that in mind who who are the people that have most influenced you do you think that's that's interesting well i mean I've, obviously i've talked about mcdonald there and trying to f have at least one foot in a historical camp so i mean my background is you know very much a literary background it's having worked in the industry with with them with a marketing bias. So I guess I've been influenced by people that I worked for or worked with, some of whom wouldn't wouldn't mean anything, you know, names wouldn't really mean anything to to, to anybody outside a very small group. Um, as a writer, uh, Anais MacDonald, I like Pip Hill's writing, you know, as a more modern writer, I don't know if you've read anything that Pip Hill's, Philip Hill's, uh, he isn't writing about whiskey anymore. Sadly, he's kind of moved away from that. This is the guy who originally set up the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society mm. and then had a reasonably celebrated falling out with them um, and left. And the society's gone on to, to great things. And he's written a couple of very valuable books about whiskey, which, again, are very candid, um, very thought-provoking. And anything by uh, Pip Hills, I think he's done a couple of books. You know, they're well worth seeking out and, and looking but I don't want it to sound too arrogant, but I, I basically try and be my own man. Sure. Sure. Uh, which I think is actually very important and does come across in, in a lot of your writing. There's two more questions I, I, that I, I feel that I must ask you. Yeah, you're far away. I don't know how you're going to edit this, but <laughs> far away. Well, one of them is... I, I've spoken recently to people who are at that very early stage of setting up new projects of, of, of new distilleries. Oh yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give them that would make people in your position in the future more able to write about what's gone on, record what's happened in their, what may become epic projects. Right. Um, I get rung up fairly frequently um, and asked, can I advise on such and such a project or would I get involved in it or would I help them? This was my consulting hat on, which is still part of my life and my income. Would I write their business plan and so forth? And I've been very reluctant to do that um, because an awful lot of the projects I've seen strike me as being, well, first of all, underfunded. Um, you know, you have to have very deep pockets to get into this. <clears throat> Whatever you think it's going to cost you, I, I suspect you probably double it and double it again uh, and then expect to wait a long, long time before you get your money out. 
I was talking recently uh, for an article I've just written for Whiskey Advocate in the US, you know, the old malt advocate, mm. uh, about successful startups. And I spent a lot of time talking to uh, Anthony Wills at Kilcoman, to uh, Andrew Nelstrop at the St. George's Distillery in, in Norfolk in England, um, and uh, also to a man called, uh, I can't remember his first name, Cuthbert, Francis Cuthbert, uh, who started Duff Mill. And they all said you need much, much more money than you ever think you're going to need. Mm. Uh, both the Cuthbert uh, venture at Duff Mill in Fife and uh, uh, the St. George's venture, they were able to finance it entirely themselves. Anthony Wills had shareholders. But for all of them, it, it's a real battle. So a number of the projects I see look to me to be underfunded. And to that extent, as a business, ill-considered, ill-conceived. And there have been a number of uh, well-documented failures where people have been asked, you know, the, the consumer, the public, have been asked to invest in whiskey, you know, distillery X or distillery Y. And we're going to build a distillery in, insert name. I'm sure you can think of some of these things. Mm. And they've never come to fruition and people have lost their money and there's been quite a lot of bitterness and ill-feeling about it. Understandably, when people have paid over in some cases, thousands and thousands of pounds to see a distillery built in X location, and it's then never happened. So first thing, I think, is is think about the money, go away, think about the money again, <laughs> think about the money again, uh, and be very, very sure that you're going to be able to put the money together. And it seems tremendously philistine and, and boring to talk about the money. But unless you've got the money, unless you've got the resource behind you, then the dream is never going to happen. Right. So that would be right at the forefront of my mind. The first thing I say to anyone is, uh, have you really got the cash to see this through? Because mm. it's scary stuff. But I'm, I'm, I suppose there's a big part of me that's thinking about in the future when people are writing books about how these, what are now startups, establish themselves, how important is it, do you feel, for them to actually log what's happening now to record oh, trem things? Tre tremend tremendously important. One of the things that was really, really nice about working uh, with Glenn Farkless uh, is that because it's been in the same family ownership for six continual generations and they've been in the habit of not really chucking anything out, you're able to accurately trace the history of that distillery and find out what really happened and go beneath the decisions, behind the decisions. So to have that archive resource is fantastic. Now, the industry was, a number of years ago, uh, tremendously casual about archives. And, and as companies were acquired, and there was, as you know, a, a huge process of consolidation, really after the war, but, but accelerating um, through the 70s and 80s, old material, archives, uh, old advertising material, distilling books, whatever it might be, was relatively casually discarded. And that probably changed about 10 or 15 years ago. I think the first archive uh, was the, what is now the Diageo archive at Menstry, and that was probably set up, I'd have to check, but I mean about 15 years ago, when they realized they had, that they had been very cavalier and they were chucking away literally irreplaceable bits of history hmm. and they've built a very very serious well-resourced archive and i know that they use it for a lot of their own new product development now because 
with with whiskey in particular, but it's true of some other spirits as well. Uh, qualities of provenance, of of authenticity, um, of of just historical accuracy are hugely important in telling a story about a brand. So to be able to go back to the actual archive and find the actual distilling recipe from 1925 or whatever it might be, the actual bottle or label from 1890, if you're trying to, to reproduce something or to show a, a bloodline through the brand, it's fantastically important to be able to have that material. So the industry now takes that whole subject very, very seriously. But I know many cases they've had to go and buy back material. They've had to find collectors. They've bought anonymously on eBay. They've bought at uh, flea markets and antique mm -hmm. markets and so forth in order to recreate a heritage that they themselves or their predecessors were putting in a skip 20 or 25 years ago yeah. during the process of consolidation, which was very tragic. And there is, of course, a great thirst for this information, isn't there, well, at the there moment? Is, there is today, you see, but the, the fashion, um, as I say, 25 years ago, was, you know, out with the old, in with the new. Mm. We're going to reinvent. We've got a glorious new future ahead of us, and the stuffy old past has no part of that. We are now mega corp distilling or whatever. Let's forget about all, all these old companies, these old brands. We're building a bright new future. And the baby went out with the bathwater. I mean, maybe a lot of fuddy-duddy practice had to go. Maybe some new thinking was called for. But we lost a lot at, at the same time. Mm. That is is painstakingly certain companies in particular painstakingly rebuilding that. So it was very satisfying uh, with Glen Glasser to a lesser extent, where there is a certain amount of material survives in the uh, Scottish Brewing and Distilling Archive at Glasgow University. Uh, we were able to go back and look at old distilling records. We were able to look at where they bought their malt in 1907 or whatever it might be, and in Glen Farkless, where we had fantastic documentation. It makes the story so much richer, and importantly, the story is absolutely rooted in truth. Sure. Sure. Ian, you mentioned the future. That brings me to my last question for you for tonight. What about the future of Ian Buxton? Where, where, did, where are you going next? What, what can we look forward to from well, you next? I, I, am, I am close, <laughs> I hope, close to finishing the follow-on to... Uh, 101 whiskies to try before you die. Everyone's been surprised and delighted by how well that's done, mm. uh, Jim. It's actually, I think, in its, in its sixth printing now, for goodness sake. Uh, and the publisher is very keen for me to do a second one. So I'm working and nearly, nearly complete. It has to be delivered uh, sometime in January, and that will publish in uh, uh, July or August next year. So the same rule, I've applied the same rules. Um, you know, nothing, uh, nothing above three figures, nothing that you can't get with a bit of work and research. But I've spread the net a lot wider. One of the things that's really, really exciting now uh, are all the new world whiskies. So the original 101 whiskies had about 70 uh, whiskies, which were from Scotland. This time, um, I've cut that back to about 30. And they will all be new and different. I've cut that back to about 30 uh, and brought in whiskies from, uh, just thinking my around my desk at the moment from Belgium, from Holland, uh, many more from Japan, many more from America, a lot more from Ireland, there's whiskies in there from Germany and so forth, from Spain, which with a little bit of work and effort, people are going to be able to get. And I think that's incredibly exciting thing about whiskey at the moment, the way it's just exploded out onto a world scene and become incredibly fashionable um, and incredibly widely enjoyed. And people have said, you know what, 
we don't have to rely on um, whiskey just from Scotland or from the US or Ireland, whatever. We can make great whiskey here in Sweden. We can make fantastically exciting whiskey here in uh, Australia. Hmm. So the new book, um, which is probably, you know, um, another 101 whiskies to try before you die or 101 world whiskies, we're, we're still working on that title, will look much more widely uh, at the world of whiskey. So that's what's, uh, that is today's project and that will exercise me for a few more weeks until I deliver it to the publisher uh, sometime in January. Ian, that's marvellous. I look forward to reading it. Oh, it should be fun. And I thank you again for your time. That's well, been thank wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. There's the website, www.themaltedmuse.com. And there's also Twitter, Twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.